looking at Matthew chapter 2, as we read the call to worship this morning, we saw that there was quite a few prophecies wrapped up in the first two verses. We're going to go ahead and read the first 12 verses, but before we get there, I really think Matthew chapter 2 begs the question of a timeline, a location, and the prophecy of the star. That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at those three prophecies and how does it apply to our lives uh, today. So how would these wise men know the when and the where? We're going to talk about that and answer that question as well. They studied the scriptures. They knew something was going to happen in Israel, but there's other things they studied as well. So they were able to be up on this. And they, they were anticipating Messiah while the country of Israel was not. Because if you look at verse 3 of Matthew chapter 2, it says, everyone was deeply disturbed. Herod was and everybody else was. Let's read that right now. Let's look at Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judah, and during the reign of King Herod, about the that time, some wise men from the east lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. He called a meeting of the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law and asked, Where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem, Judah, they said. For this is what the prophet wrote, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah, for a ruler will, will come from you, who will be the shepherd of my people. Well, who did we learn is the good shepherd? Just a few weeks ago in the book of John, we learned that that is Jesus, right? Then Herod came for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them that the time when the star first appeared, and then he told them, Go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child, and when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the the child was. And when they saw the star, they were filled with joy, and they entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary. And they bowed down and worshipped him. And then they opened their treasure treasure chests, and they gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And when it was time to leave, they returned to their country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. Okay, so there's a lot of things in here that we're not necessarily going to cover this week as well, but I'm going to do my best to walk through Matthew chapter 2 and point to some of these prophecies, and one may shock you a little bit because it's quoted in Matthew, but it's not actually quoted from the Old Testament. So it is interesting because they don't put quotes in New Testament writing very often. You don't put quote marks around things. Um, but Matthew does, and so that changes the meaning a little bit, and it's just amazing. But what a story. Did you catch it? The Lord is coming and has came to save his people. 
How do we know this is the one? How do we know this is the Messiah? There's supposed to be a lot of people. A lot of people are popping up saying, I am the Messiah. I am he. Here, here I am. But none of them are the Messiah. How do we know that Jesus is the Messiah, is the one he claims to be? It's time to dig into the Old Testament and to see how it gives credibility to the New Testament. Let's look at verses at the first two verses. Jesus was born in Jerusalem or born in Bethlehem in Judah during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some men from the east lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, "Where's the newborn king of the Jews? We saw a star as it rose and we have come to worship him." Well, one thing that's a little interesting about that is if do you guys know what's happening this year? On December 31st, not 31st, 21st, December 21st on the, the solstice. The Christmas star, yeah, have you seen that? That the two planets are lining again, and a lot of people believe that that is one of the Christmas stars, that the way those planets lined up, it, it really is something special to see. Um, I had a friend that took a picture of it a few days ago, early in the morning, and it it's pretty impressive. Um, so I just I thought that was kind of neat. Uh, but the the twenty first is supposed to be visible right after uh, dusk and things. So it's going to be a neat thing to see. Um, there's a video out there that shows how that that possibly could be and how it moved because it led them to Jerusalem first and then it moves and shifts and takes them down to Bethlehem. And so that is also very interesting if you've ever looked at that. I don't know if it's true. I don't, the guy doesn't necessarily say it's um, part of the biblical canon that this should be, the star chart should be in there as well. But he found it interesting. And the stars don't move. They do move, but they don't move. You know what I mean? Their, their trajectory stays on the same path that it always has. And so you can trace it back, and that's how they're able to find these things. And I thought that was pretty interesting in itself. So Jesus was born in Bethlehem. What are the prophecies that we see in Matthew chapter 2? Well, here's our main point for the day. The God of creation, being bound by the laws of creation, came down to rescue those he created. Our hope is in Messiah Jesus. So the first one that we see today is the timeline of Daniel. Now, I will tell you, I spent most of my sermon prep on this prophecy, trying to get the timeline figured out. I've had it figured out before when I was younger. I remember talking to Craig uh, back at the previous church that I worked at and was like, do you see how much this like lines up with Jesus and the Messiah? And I cannot believe that they did not get this. And this time I went to line it up again, and I couldn't get it to fit for a hill of beans because I can do math. So this is what I did. Daniel, he was a prophet who was exiled to Babylon about 600 years. Well, when you say, come from the east... Men came from the east. The east is referred to, or, or many times, is referred to as Babylon in the Bible. Okay, So these men could have studied under D- 
Daniel. They could have been Jewish people still exiled out there. They could have been both. Okay, there, there's a lot of options that could have happened here. And so if you look at this, you find that Daniel was a prophet of Israel. He was exiled to Babylon before Jesus was born, 600 years before Jesus is born. So if you look at Daniel's lifespan, they, they figure about 605 to 538, okay? And then you look at, in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27, is a major prophecy, probably, I'll, I don't know, I would say one of the, one of the biggest, not the biggest prophecy in the Bible for the Messiah, Jesus, okay? So at, what I found so interesting as I looked for these answers that as I, I, I Googled it, right? I want to figure out this, this timeline prophecy. So I, I checked Google real quick, see where I, how, how do I add this up? Because um, the prophecy says it's seven, 70 sets of seven, okay? Time frames, that's 490. I can multiply and do the math of that, right? We have 490 years. Okay, let me do that math real quick. Even if it was at the end of, of uh, what's his name, Daniel's lifespan. So say like 538 or 539, right? That 490, still, we're still 40 BC, 38 BC, Jesus. So that doesn't fit a timeline. And I'm like, Oh, darn it. So then I'm like, well, let's look at the other major 70 timeline that I, that I know about, and it's Jeremiah. This is actually Daniel chapter 9 is, is about, it's where he discovers Jeremiah's 70 years in exile, right? So he's got 70 years in exile, and so he looks at that and he says, well, we're four years away from this. In four years, we're going to be done with this. We got to get ready to return. We got to get back to the people, right? And so he prays this amazing prayer in Daniel chapter 9. If you ever want to learn how to pray, read Daniel chapter 9 and look how to pray for a nation. Look how to pray for a people group. Look how to pray for your church. Wow. Daniel chapter 9 has got it. And so he prays with this lament, with this anticipation of this Messiah returning. But you know what happens with that prophecy? It doesn't, it's not like 73 years. It happens in 67 years. The next year, I think, this is my personal opinion, this is only a Shainism, that Daniel's prayer was so powerful and effective that God answered the prayer quicker um, because he saw Daniel's heart. And the heart, God's people is all, or God's heart for his people is always going to want to shorten punishments and things. And so I'm like, well, that doesn't make sense because 490, it should be less than then. You know, if it were like 443, then I could live with it because God shortened the, the time trial. But no, it's longer and God hardly ever, I don't even know if I think of time in the Bible where God lengthens a punishment, unless they, he like says, shame on you, I'm lengthening the punishment. <laughs> Couldn't find it. So I'm baffled again. 
And I am wrestling with this and wrestling with this. And I finally found a guy that explained it well enough for me that I'm like, yes, this makes sense. So when I looked at Daniel chapter 9, I, um, I'm going to see if I can just pull it up here because I'm just going to shortchange it if I don't. So I'm going to pull up my Bible app here and go to Daniel chapter 9. So I did not put in my sermon this morning. I have 25, but I'm pretty sure I need 24. So Daniel... Nine, twenty-four. Okay. So yeah, it says, A period of 70 sets of seven has been decreed for your people in your sit- holy city to finish their rebellion, to put an end to their sin, to atone for their guilt, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to confirm the prophetic vision and to anoint the most holy place. To anoint the most holy place, that means that God's going to make it right again. He is going to cleanse it permanently. Okay, the most holy place we would know as the holy of holies, right? Or, in our case, as Christians, it could be Jesus Christ. Okay, because he's going to make that holy of holies in our hearts from this point forward. So, that is the prophecy there. Then he explains the prophecy in 25 and 26 and 27 and 28, okay? So it says, now listen and understand, seven sets of seven plus 62 sets of seven will pass from the time the command is given to rebuild Jerusalem until a ruler anointed one comes. Jerusalem will be rebuilt with the streets and strong defenses despite perilous times. That's what I was missing right there. Because it, Had Jerusalem been rebuilt yet? No. When do we know Jerusalem to get walls? And when do we know them to have perilous times? Build with one hand, have a sword on your hip? Well, that's Nehemiah, right? Story of Nehemiah. Ezra is in there as well. Ezra and Nehemiah is that story. So if you look at their timeline, Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king right around uh, 45, 44 BC. Well, then you take that. You still have 50 years left over, and then you have. It's actually to when Jesus dies on the cross. So you figure another 30 years. Well, that gets us down to 20 years, 2021. 20, but if you look at and this, is a little bit of a shamanism, okay? So you take the 70 years that they were exiled, and they were cut short to 67. 67 times the 7 puts it right on that timeline, exactly. And so those prophets could have done the same math, saw the star, and said, it fits. We're going to see the king. Okay? In 30 years, this guy's going to do something, but he's going to be born now. And so we are going to go look in search of this king because we see the king's star. And if you watch the video that's out there, it kind of explains that the the star that they understood, which was a, it's a planet actually, uh, is the king or the queen star, and they come together, and they're like, where's this king? Where's he at? It has to be something amazing. It happened right over top of you, so tell us what it is. And the king 
uh, of the area, he's like, Herod's like, I'm the king. I am the one that should be here. And if there's one that's being born, we're going to kill the king. Said just about every king adventure movie that we have out there in Hollywood today. There's nothing new under the sun. You, you see that throughout the Old Testament. Uh, when one king comes in, they, they kill off all the other king sons and, and close friends and things. It's, there's no different. They want to be the ruler of their own world. They want to be in charge. I'm just glad I don't do that. I'm so, I'm so glad I'm free of control issues. <laughs> right? Isn't sin control issues? Isn't that like the definition of sin? It's control issues. If you could let go of control, then you, would, you probably wouldn't sin. Probably 90% of your sins would be gone out the window if you could just let go of control. But no, we're good at that. We're good at things like that. And the problem I have with this is the people were greatly disturbed. And you wonder, are they disturbed because Herod's disturbed? And we know that Herod is disturbed. <laughs> uh, the guy was crazy. And so now are they going to, like, is he going to go on one of his rampages again? Is he going to do something crazy? So they could have been disturbed like that. But the way it reads, it reads that they were the same disturbed as Herod, which means they were kind of comfortable with their sin, maybe. And they weren't really ready for a Messiah. They weren't ready for somebody to come in and change things up. And they almost missed it. They got comfortable in their sin. They got comfortable in what they thought was fun and amazing. And they missed, almost missed their Messiah. They had to have somebody come from far away to remind them of the hope of the Messiah. Jesus promises to come again. He promises to come the second time. And it's actually what a lot of Daniel chapter 9's prophecy is about, too. You almost always see the one working for the other. So if you have the first prophecy of the first coming, the second prophecy is usually tied right there with it. There's very few that they're not tied together. Uh, you look at, um, we're going to look at it maybe a little bit, but um, Isaiah chapter 7, um, where it talks about uh, a baby coming, and then he's going to, have the rulers, yada, 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 on top of that. So he's going to rule with power and authority. Well, that's more second coming, okay? But there's a little bit of the first coming tied in there. You see that also in Isaiah chapter 11. It talks about a baby in two, but it, it's really dealing with the second coming. And so, as I've said before, I can give a little grace to those who thought the Messiah was going to come as one, but... He didn't do that. He chose not to. He chose to clean and cleanse the world of sin first, and then he's going to come back uh, once the timing is all and the quantity of the Gentiles is enough for the Lord. Then uh, God will come back and he will bring his people back to him. So Jesus promises to come back again. Are we ready? Are we watching is he going to be proud of our actions when he returns? 
What does Jesus say about him coming back? He has quite a few parables out there, right? What are some of the things that he says? He compares it to to keep watch for a thief in the night. You know, that, that shows that we need to be attuned to some of the signs and the wonders and some of the, hey, you know, sleep with one eye open kind of thing. Well, that's what we're supposed to do kind of like today. So he's going, is he going to be proud of our actions when he returns? If we are always in a state of readiness, we'll be ready when he comes, right? That's the, the idea behind that. And when he comes back, are we going to get caught with our hand in the cookie jar? I hope not. It is our choice how you, res- how you will respond to the hope of the Messiah Jesus. So place a stake in the ground today. Place a stake in the ground and say, I will go no more in this area. I will confess my sin and I will turn from my evil ways and I will turn to the Lord. Do we have evil in our lives as Christians? Yeah, we do. We do. Um, We should have conviction in our lives too though right and that is like it's like yay i'm convicted that i sin oh dang it now i can't how to stop sinning right right that's where guilt comes in guilt's not a bad thing guilt means you did something wrong but it means that you have a moral standard okay so your foundations actually get a lot better when you feel guilty it means that um you have a pretty good moral standing um and that you have a choice then to make it right with the Lord and ask for forgiveness, right? So we have a choice to make it right. We have a choice to place a stake in the ground to declare the allegiance to Christ. And when the whole culture is telling us to follow our heart, oh, you do you. The culture likes that one too. You do you. Just follow what you, just do what you believe. Live for the experience. Yeah, do what makes you happy. Um, Yeah, we have to decide, don't we? We have to decide today whom we are going to serve. Man, that that sounds like a a Bible verse. I feel a Bible verse coming on. It's kind of like a musical. You can you can always see when the the music's about to start and they'll like cue it. I feel a Bible verse coming on. It's Joshua chapter 25, verses 14 and 15. This is Joshua speaking to the people. He's about ready to um, give the promised land over to the people. He kind of can see the trajectory in which they're going, and it's not toward the Lord, but it's kind of away from the Lord. And so he comes and reminds them, and it works for about two or three generations. But as soon as they start to forget Joshua, they start doing their own things, and that's the book of Judges, right? So Joshua 25, 14, and 15. So fear the Lord and serve him wholeheartedly. Put away forever the idols of your ancestors' worship when they lived beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt. Serve the Lord alone. Think about this. Put away the idols. How many idols did they have in Egypt? Hundreds, for sure, that were worshipped. All of them were worshipped. And you know who directed that worship? 
the Pharaoh did. So when God stands up to the Pharaoh, he is standing up to all the false gods. And when he puts the Pharaoh in his place, he's putting himself in proper place. He was showing all Egypt that I am your Lord, your God, am stronger than all these little gods that you think you know. He says, this is what, serve the Lord, verse 15, but if you refuse to serve the Lord, choose today whom you will serve. Would you prefer the gods of your ancestors served behind the Euphrates, or will it be the gods of the Amorites in, in whose land you now live? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. That is such a powerful verse. The God of creation, being bound by the laws of creation, came down to rescue those he created. Therefore, our hope is in Messiah Jesus. Wow. The star. The wise men came to worship the king. They followed the star of Bethlehem. We know about the star of David, right? Uh, if you've ever seen that, it's a six-pointed star. I don't know if there's any symbolism between there. I didn't have enough time because I had to figure out the Daniel timeline this time. So maybe another Christmas down the road, I'll be able to figure that out if there's any correlation between there. I know if you were Jewish, you would definitely say no. Uh, that has nothing to do with it, but I don't know. I haven't got a chance to look at that. So as we go in looking at the Daniel prophecy, you know what the biggest thing that I found? This is a little side note. The first three websites that I looked at on Google all said that Dan Daniel was a made-up character. He didn't really exist. That his book, there's no proof for it, and um, there's no proof or evidence that Daniel was even a person, let alone this king. Well, that's starting to fall apart a little bit because they're starting to find some ruins that are pointing to um, that particular king and um, Daniel himself. So good luck with that one. It's always funny how history kind of proves the Bible right. So I, was, I thought that was very interesting, though, but because I don't even think last year that would have happened, but the first three um, clicks were all proof that Daniel didn't exist. Because if Daniel, and I specifically looked up Daniel chapter 9, okay, and that's when it popped up. Uh, because Daniel chapter 9 points very strongly to Jesus' time, and that doesn't work in a Jewish um, way because they want the Messiah to come as the conquering king. They're just looking for the second coming, and that's not how Jesus worked it. He worked the heart first, and then he's going to work the lifestyle at the end. Okay? So the star, back to it. They followed it to Jerusalem, and then they followed it to Bethlehem. God had done something wonderful to pronounce his birth. Wise men would have, they would have studied the stars to make and determine how they set their calendars, okay? They don't have a nifty little computer that they can put up or a little Timex on, on, their, on their wrist and say, what time is it? No, they had to look at the stars and see where they lined up and find out what season it was, when the seasons changed, when things went and they came, they went, um, they set it by the lunar calendar, and so 
It always got funny toward the end of the year. We have to add 12 more days to get to this. But how would they know that? They would know it by where the stars lined up. And they'd have charts. And when this star, particular star gets to this point, we start our new year. Right? Makes sense, doesn't it? So it's always funny, though, when you go by a lunar calendar, which is what they did in the Old Testament. They're like, um, we need, we need, uh, we need uh, five extra days this year. Or next year, it's we need 12 extra days. Oh, we're right on time this year. Um, and you can see that uh, how our, our Easter and their Passover line up. So sometimes they're right on the same day. Sometimes they're, they're way off. It's because the, the, the solar calendar, thank you. I'm like, the sun calendar, that's not right. The solar calendar and the lunar calendar, they line up sometimes, sometimes they don't. And so that was very interesting to me as well. So they watched the moon to set their lunar calendar. They watched the stars for navigation. And they were, there were several reasons to watch the stars in those days. Okay? But God did something unique in the sky. Whether it was these two planets lining up, whether it was an angel that sat over Jerusalem for a time and then moved down to Bethlehem, we don't really know. But it doesn't really matter. Whether it's natural or supernatural, these guys saw a bright light and they had to go check it out. And it wasn't just up in the sky high enough for them to see only in Israel. It was so the nations could see. So it had to be way up in the sky, right? And then it said it settled over Bethlehem. So God's going to do something amazing. He did something unique, and either by the natural or supernatural, God set a, set a star of Bethlehem pointing to the nations, to the birth of the Messiah. Was a star found in the Old Testament? Is there a prophecy for the star? Well, I looked at Numbers chapter 24, verse 17a. It says, I see him, but not here and now I perceive him, but far in the distant future, a star will rise from Jacob. A scepter will emerge from Israel. So they were keeping an eye on this prophecy. They understood that there was going to be a star that rose. And if you look at this, it points to two different times that Christ is coming. A star that rose and then a scepter. Where do we see an iron scepter? We see in Revelation, right? When Christ is going to rule basically with an iron fist and he's going to eradicate sin. When do we see the star? When he says, here I am, I've come to rescue you. As a beacon of light, of rescue in a sense, that he's come to redeem the world. And there's something very interesting there. And so that's where we see it really pointing to two different um comings of the Messiah. That's one particular case. The lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Okay? A lamp unto my feet. And in our sense, we use the Old Testament to see where God has come from. And then we look at the New Testament and says, this is where he's going. Where is he going to continue on that road? What can I see next? Where can I go? So a lamp unto my feet. I can see my next step is here. A light unto my path 
is heaven, right? So Jesus, in a sense, he is coming as a lamp unto my feet the first time and a light unto my path. This is the goal of heaven, right? This is where we want to be. But right here, right now, I'm coming as a baby. Sweet baby Jesus, right? That's mind-boggling. Why would you do that? Why would the creator make himself so vulnerable in his own creation that he could be snuffed out like that. And it's not like he had an army to protect him. He had a Mary and a Joseph. Mary had a, she had to have a um, thick skin. Hey, you're going to be a a virgin that's going to have a baby before you're married. Everybody's going to talk about you, and everybody's going to point fingers and laugh and, and say you're not worthy, and uh, even your husband's going to want to divorce you, but he's not going to because I'm telling him not to. You're, and she says, basically, your will be done. Your will be done, Lord. Um, I am your servant, is how she points it. Whoa, she's all in. So Christ wants to do something wonderful in each one of our lives, just like he did similar in Mary's. But we have to invite him him, him in. We have to say, I'm all in. What does that look like? Does it mean that we are comfortable? I'm going to come to church on Sunday, and I'm going to go home and do nothing because that's what we got to do during COVID. <sighs> I'm going to serve at the food pantry and I'm going to check on my neighbors and things and I'm going to be a good person, but that's all I'm going to do. Is that enough? That's not really enough. How do I know that's not enough? Because at the end of the days, Jesus himself warns us and says, that's not enough. Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. He says, look, I stand at the door and knock. If you hear my voice and open the door, I will come in, and we will share a meal together as friends. Those who are victorious will sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat with my father on his throne. If you look throughout the Bible, you can see, especially in King David's life, where God tests King David. Many times, David falls short. He's like, hey, it's a test. (laughs) I flunked. Right After he comes to power, almost every test that God gives him, he messes up. But what does he do? He asks for repentance. When he takes a sentence, the census, he's not supposed to take a census. God said, don't take a census. I don't want you to know how many people are there because you will become arrogant and proud of what you've done opposed to what God has done for you. How many times have we taken census in our life? Look what I've done. Look what I've built here. Look what this has happened to me. God forbid that we do something like that. We need to say, look what God has done. Look what he has provided for me. And look how I can serve him more. What is the next step I can take to serve him? There's a big difference. Some of the same words, but we twisted them a little bit, right? Isn't that how Satan works? He likes to twist that and say, oh, look at, oh, yeah, God did some amazing things, but look how you helped him out. Oh, look at Shane. Go, Shane, go. No, 
No. Last year I was studying for a sermon and I can't remember what preacher said this. I, I don't know what one it was, but he got done and a little old lady told him, uh, good job, you did a really good job on your sermon. He says, don't tell me that. And she says, well, why not? You did a really good job. And he says, because Satan just told me that five minutes ago and I don't need you reinforcing what he said. And I was like, boom, that is it right there for a preacher. You know, how is that any different when we serve or when we do our job and we start looking at ourselves? No, God has given us those gifts and abilities. He has given us those resources and we give him the glory. He deserves all the praise. He deserves all the honor. God of creation has been bound by the laws of creation, came down to rescue those he created. Our hope is in Messiah Jesus. Finally, we come down to the three locations we see in Matthew chapter 2. And so I put location, location, location. Yeah, that's the famous realtor line, right? The first location is Bethlehem. Right? It makes sense. It shows up there. Uh, it's in verse 1. So, hey, Bethlehem. Yep, okay, yeah. That makes sense, Shana. You're a bright, brilliant preacher. Way to go. <laughs> we have shepherds and wise men, men gathering through the few years here at Bethlehem. The shepherds come at the announcement of the birth, right? The angels go out. We got to go see what this is all about right? The second one is a few years later. A lot of people believe, I personally believe, that the wise men came a few years later. And they show up at Bethlehem and say, where? They show up Jerusalem first, and then they consult the stars. When did it first appear? A couple years, they go back and say, okay, what's Herod do? Does he believe him? Yeah, he does. What's he do? He goes and kills all the babies Three or two or three years on and younger, right? Kills them all. There's no way I'm going to have competition here. Which brings us to our second location, but we'll get there in a second, right? We have come to welcome the Messiah, the Christ. Do you know that Messiah and Christ are the same word? Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. Okay, so when we say Christ Jesus, we're saying Messiah Jesus, okay? We have hope in Christ, hope in the Christ. Christ is a title, not a last name. It's not Jesus Christ, it's Christ Jesus. Whoa. I was blown away when I learned that, probably about sophomore year in, in high school. It's like, what? So, showing us that Christ came for the poor and the well-off, the simple and the wise, praise God that he came to save us all. Where do we find that prophecy? We find it in, Matthew, in Micah chapter 5, verse 2 through 4. Again, you'll see how this flows into the second coming. Okay, It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel whose origins are in the distant past will come from from you on my behalf, the people of Israel will be abandoned by their 
enemies until the woman in labor gives birth. And then at last his fellow countrymen will return from exile to their own land and he will stand to lead his flock with the Lord's strength in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And then his people will live there undisturbed for he will be highly honored around the world and he will be the source of peace. Okay, he is our source of peace now, but the one they're referring to is a time of peace, which would be the second coming, right? So you can also give them a little grace there on that. But Christ fits so many other prophecies, you can't, can't ignore them, that he's come twice. And once you look at it in that aspect, you see, oh, this one is here. This one's going to be the second time. Makes sense. It pays to study God's word because it's not like, oh, I just need the New Testament because that's all I need because that's where Jesus is at. No, Jesus is in the Old Testament too. And he used that as proof and evidence of the New Testament. The second location is Egypt. Well, we know this because they come out of Egypt. Your child is going to come out of Egypt. There's a couple prophecies, a couple psalms about that. Another one is in Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. It says, Israel was a child. I loved him, and I called my son out of Egypt. Again, in Jeremiah 31, 15 through 17, it says, This is what the Lord said. A cried heard in Ramah, which is in Egypt. It's a major city. It's, I'm pretty sure it was the capital, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Deep anguish and bitter weeping. Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for her children are gone. But now this is what the Lord says. Do not weep any longer. I tell you what, think about Jeremiah. Think about this guy. Everything he wrote was doom, doom, and more doom. Okay, the guy wrote Lamentations for crying out loud. Have you ever read Lamentations? It is so like... If you ever need to be humbled about your sin, you read Lamentations and you lament your sin in your own life. It is like, it's such a parallel there. Jeremiah wrote it because that's all he got to see, the doom and the destruction. And he gets this one little ray of hope. He gets about four maybe through the book of Jeremiah. This is one of them. Okay, Rachel weeps for her children. Do not weep any longer, for I will reward you, says the Lord. Your children will come back to you for the distant land of the enemy. This, there is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your, your children will come up again to their own land. He's talking about the nation of Egypt, right? He's called Messiah out of Egypt. Rich Mullins has a great song about that. I don't know if you've ever heard that one. Um, My Deliverer is coming. My Deliverer is standing by. It's a great song. And it talks about Joseph took his wife and king and they went to Africa, escaped the hands of a deadly king. And it's just a great song. It tells that story really well because Joseph was told in a dream, you need to flee from here. You need to go down there so he can escape the wrath of Herod as he goes up there and kills all the other babies that were born during the census period. We're talking about wiping out a lot of the Line of David, right there. Okay? That's where David was born, if you didn't know that, in Bethlehem. Okay? What else do we see in Bethlehem? Why did the shepherds run and know where he was born? 
because that's where they would come. You'll find him lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. Well, the shepherds would know that because that's the birthing place of the sheep that were slaughtered at Passover, a.k.a. Jesus. How do they take care of their sheep when they're born? They wrap them in swaddling clothes and lay them in the manger. So they knew right where to look. They didn't have to be like, oh, what was that address? No, they knew exactly right where it was because that's where all the, the sacrificial lambs are. That's where Jesus, why wouldn't they go there? They birth lambs all the time. It's not really that much different. Honestly, sorry, that's true. I grew up on a farm, seen that. I've had four kids, I know that too. Um, and it's not much different, right? So why not go to the experts that do it all the time when you're, you've traveled and it, it could prove to be a very difficult birth because that gal had to be dehydrated. She had to be uncomfortable sitting on top of a donkey if she was lucky, you know, if she could walk. I don't even know. Nine months? Hey, let's walk. I got a good idea. Let's go take a census. Now? Are you kidding me? Well, it's not our choice. We got to go, honey. Man, I have respect for that woman. So, Jesus, the last one, the third, the location of Nazareth. He comes back to Bethlehem, and then they move to Nazareth because he's afraid of King Herod, right? But it's interesting that this is in quotes because you cannot find it in the Old Testament, where it says the Messiah will be called the Nazarene. It is not in there, okay? So what is it referring to? So to be called a Nazarene would be called a commoner, a man of no consequence, a man of no reputation. You are, you're not even Jewish in a sense, you're not from the tribe of Judah. You came from Nazareth, which we already know that he was Jewish and he did come from the tribe of Judah. But if they're going to put him down, they never referred to that, did they? Oh, wait, they called him that all the time throughout the New Testament. If you look through the New Testament, they're always like, you, he came from Nazareth. What good came from Nazareth? That was one of his own disciples. He says, well, come and see. Come and see. It was before he was his disciple or his apostle. And the, what, what other places? There's so many times. We know this man's, we know this man's uh, mother and father and where he comes from Nazareth. When the Messiah comes, we won't know where he came from. Jesus answers that question too. But I would say, I would point to that when he's called a Nazarene, it's, called, it's meant as an insult. Okay, that's what Matthew means. And you can find that prophecy in Isaiah 53, 2. My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, like a root in a dry ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. Jesus didn't win the crowds by his good looks. He was a common man. Also, you see it in Psalm 22, verses 
6 and 7, but I am a worm, not a man. I am scorned and despised by all. Everyone who sees me mocks me. They sneer and shake their heads. In this respect, Jesus fits the bill quite nicely. Many times we see that there is no... Many times they said there is no prophet from Nazareth, but we know that Jesus was born in Bethlehem from the line of David according to the scriptures he moved down to Egypt he came out of Egypt according to the scriptures he was called a man of no reputation according to scriptures and he died on the cross and he rose three days later all according to scripture we got to look at the evidence and we've got to make up our mind that Jesus, he just might be the Christ. And if he's the Christ, he's got to change our heart. He offers to, right? He offers to come in. He didn't come just to earth to die. He came to faith, face death straight on and defeat it. He is our conquering king. And he will come back again and he will prove it to all creation. And you know what's funny? After he comes back again, he's going to reign for a thousand years on the earth, and people are going to turn away from him again. Are we stupid or what? That's why I'm like, you can't lose, this is, sorry, this is a little, Jesse would love this one. You can't lose your salvation? Oh yeah, you're going to be reigning with Jesus for a thousand years, and you're going to turn away from him again. Who's going to be that person? One of his elect. We better be careful. We always want to keep our on the straight and narrow. Stay humble, right? He didn't sit by idly and watch his kingdom fall, did he? He did not. No, he humbled himself to our ridicule, to our brokenness, to what we have to offer, which is not much. He was the infinite. He was the all-knowing. And we are the finite. We are the broken. And then we like broke ourselves worse. So we're not broken enough. So we go and sin, and then we're broken even more. And he faced all those temptations. He faced all those, and he won. So that we can be made whole. That that is the God that I am willing to follow. That is the God that I am willing to serve because he set the example of how to serve. It says in the Bible that there's no greater love than a man who lays down his life for a friend. But I get to thinking, I'm like, well, maybe there is. Maybe there is. There's no greater love than a man willing to lay down his life. For man to man, that's probably true. But think about this. There would be an all-powerful God of the universe that laid his life down for a little speck of dust in the universe so that not he could have eternal life, so that we could have eternal life. That is even greater than what I can offer. And he did it for you, and he did it for me. That is why I serve God our Father Jesus Christ. And I think that's why you should too.
That is our compelling story. That is why we're here as Christ followers, isn't it? We have an opportunity to share the God of the universe with our friends. So, friends, at White Rose, what's holding us back? I don't know how. Well, then we need, there's a problem there, right? We need to get trained on how to do that. We need to practice on how to do that. Sometimes we've received the training, but we're out of practice. We need to do that. We need to look at resources that will help us to do that. And I'm going to tell you, the book Out of the Salt Shaker is a great book and research resource for that. She shows you how to show your, share your faith in such a simple way by just basically asking questions to get them to their root of their beliefs and then that way you have an opportunity to share or an opportunity to, to wait and pray for another opportunity to pray again or share again. The God of creation, the infinite, the all-knowing, being bound by the laws of creation, came down to rescue those he created. Our hope is in Messiah Jesus. Let's pray.